Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. In today's episode, we have an interview with Dr. Thomas Hegna and Robert Johnson about 3D printing. We have Dinosaur of the Day, Lorinhonosaurus. We have a bunch of dinosaur news, and we would like to thank our Stegosaurus patrons, Scotty, Jackson, Megan Dixon, and Eric Keller. And as a reminder, our shirt is now done, so hopefully you got a chance to buy it. And we got several new patrons, and we're only $15 away from the $200 mark when we're going to send out awesome T-Rex logo stickers to all of our patrons, regardless of which level you're at. So if you want to get in on that, make sure you join our community on Patreon before we hit that $200 mark, which could be as soon as next week. Who knows? Hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cool if it was. Yeah. And if you're not able to give us a donation on Patreon, we'd really appreciate a review on iTunes or a like on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or anywhere that you go, because that helps us spread the word about our podcast and, and helps us get advertisers and all that good stuff. So jumping right into the news, if you've been paying attention to any Twitter or really anything about dinosaurs this week, you might have seen a whole bunch of stuff about this new hypothesis about dinosaur phylogeny that's been blowing up the internet. Not really the whole internet. Just well, the any, anywhere talking section. about dinosaurs, yeah. Yeah. And people were tweeting that, you know, tweet like twice a year, just like crazy because there was so much stuff going on. And so as a quick background just because it's always good to remind ourselves. Traditionally, we've got two dinosaur groups based on kind of their hip layouts. And you've got Saurischia, which are the sauropodomorphs, things like Brontosaurus, and then also all the theropods, which are all the predators, and then a couple weirdos like Therizinosaurs that ate plants. But mostly it's the huge herbivores and then all the carnivores in Saurischia. And then you have the Ornithischians, and those are all the herbivores that aren't sauropods, basically. So you've got Stegosaurs, Ceratopsians, Hadrosaurs, Ankylosaurs, Pachycephalosaurs, you know, the list goes on and on. There's a ton of Ornithischians. Yeah, so the Saurischians come from the Latin for lizard-hipped because their hips are arranged similar to some modern lizards, and Ornithischians means bird-hipped because their hips are arranged similarly to some modern birds. So that's been the structure for about 130 years. Back in 1877, that was originally discussed, and that's where we're at now. The new hypothesis goes a completely different way than just those two broad categories, because right now every single dinosaur would fit either in Saurischia and Ornithischia. In this new method, I guess, or hypothesis, they revived a clade by T.H. Huxley yeah. named... Good old Huxley. <laughs> yeah. And he had one called Ornithoscalida, and it used to include several different things when Huxley named it, but they just kind of reused the name, not really the exact same way he used it. But in their version, you've got Ornithischians and Theropods. So previously, Ornithischians were their own thing, and then theropods were lumped in with sauropodomorphs in Saurischians. So we kind of took the theropods out of Saurischia. Yeah, get them out. And stuck them in 
Keep it to the sauropods. Yeah. <laughs> so then you have the redefined saurischians as sauropodomorphs, and then there are a few Triassic carnivores like Herrerasaurids in there. So it's not just sauropodomorphs by themselves, as Sabrina would probably like it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, that's a bummer. Some of the cladistics kind of put the sauropodomorphs on their own branch when they were simplifying the story for the news, but there are some carnivores in there, so it's not quite that simple. Hmm. I don't know if I can get on board with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the authors got this model from computer modeling, and that's usually how we do these paleontology family trees because, you know, it's it's really hard for a person to look at differences in bones and figure out how many characteristics they have in common and do the statistics on which ones have more in common than others, especially they were looking at over 400 different characteristics. So you can plop all these different species in there with all these characteristics, and it'll give you a likely family tree. So it came up with these two basic main groups, and it also pushed the first likely true dinosaur evolution date back to 247 million years ago, which is at least 4 million years older than any previous estimate had been. So it's a very different look at how dinosaurs evolved, and it also has some other weird features. For instance, there's now carnivores and herbivores in both groups, and because of that, the authors are postulating that maybe the earliest dinosaurs might have been omnivores instead of carnivores. Hmm. And pretty much everyone up till this point has said the earliest dinosaurs were carnivores, then some became omnivores, and then finally some of them became herbivores later. I guess that would make sense, right? They were too small to be the dominant ones. Not so really. You just eat whatever. No, because, yeah. I mean, you just eat bugs or you eat little fish or something. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, they weren't necessarily eating each other. In a pinch, though, if you're hungry. Yeah, that's kind of what they were saying. They could be like generalists that way, so... Kind of like a bear or something. <laughs> you know, if there aren't animals around, you just eat something else. You just mm. eat whatever. But one advantage to this model is that it simplifies feather evolution because as it stands with the Saurischians and the Ornithischians, there are feathers in both groups. And that means there has to be some really old common ancestor, basically before dinosaurs, that had feathers or at least some feather-like structure. Most likely. They could have evolved separately, but it seems... Unlikely, since no other animals have evolved feathers. And in this group, all of the feathers are within that new Ornithoscelida. So that kind of simplifies feather evolution. But one of the biggest problems with it is we don't have really well-preserved Triassic Ornithischians. So it makes this modeling really difficult. And... Probably the biggest problem is we have 130 years of science that kind of is based on Ornithischians and Saurischians. So, as Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. If you're trying to overturn such a huge volume of scientific literature, you really need some really powerful evidence. And some paleontologists are saying they're not quite there yet. We need some more studies. We need some more independent verification of this kind of work before we throw away all of our own all of our old textbooks sure but uh, i think it's interesting though just going back to huxley what if just everything huxley said turned out to be right <laughs> yeah well he he definitely was wrong though i mean he had other groups in there that didn't make sense and things like that yeah but yeah it is always funny when things go back to huxley 
<laughs> yeah, we'll see. There were some really funny tweets about it. One of my favorites was the Planet of the Apes and where the Statue of Liberty was like buried in the sand and said you blew it up. There was a picture of the old cladogram with the Saurischians and the Ornithischians. <laughs> and there's another picture of somebody that had put all their dinosaur textbooks in the garbage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty interesting. It doesn't change a ton for the stuff that we talk about because we usually just talk about like within theropods, you have this going on and theropods are still theropods. You know, stegosaurs are still stegosaurs. It's just how these groups are related and how they might have evolved, which does have some effect on how we think their behavior and things might have been. But mostly it doesn't change too much about the specific dinosaurs. On a lighter note, <laughs> had to get that one out of the way because it was such big news this week. But it is kind of difficult to talk about. We've got a paper about the Isle of Wight, also known as Dinosaur Island. And we've mentioned before, it's got a lot of Hypsilophodon fossils. It's also got some plant fossils and marine fossils, all sort of in the same area. And there's a new paper that tries to explain how all of these fossils got mixed up and why there were so many Hypsilophodons there. So aside from the other plants and animals buried with Hypsilophodon, there are a few clues about how all of those dinosaurs got buried there. There were a ton of individuals, which points to it being a mass burial. There also wasn't much scavenging, which means they were probably buried before or very shortly after they died. And they potentially lived in a low-lying area based on the stratigraphy. So then the authors draw a comparison. They looked at levees breaching during Hurricane Katrina, and they talk about the characteristic sediment floodplain that's called a crevasse splay. And yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of this before, but it's when finer particles can travel farther through some sort of breach in a levee or a riverbank than coarser particles can. It's just because they're lighter weight so they can get carried farther and less energetic water than these bigger pieces of material that kind of settle down quicker. And you can, when you see this sort of gradient of material, you can tell that it might have been caused by a break in a river or a levee. And they think that these Hypsilophodons were buried in a similar way. So they propose this kind of cyclical burial happening and they say you've got a bunch of hypsilophodons flocking in a floodplain picking at little plants and you know insects and things and then periodically the levee or you know riverbank breaches and it floods the whole plain they all get buried and die and get fossilized slowly and then on top of that plants start growing and then hypsilophodons go back down into the area and then it breaches again and then they all get buried again <laughs> so they never remember well you know this might be over hundreds or thousands of years mm. and if that's where the food is too you might have to go there and then eventually the area gets inundated by the cretaceous sea and then the cycle stops because there's no new plants growing you know there's no hypsilophodons there because they'd be like treading water or something <laughs> <laughs> and you end up with these crevasse splay type sandstone deposits and then intermixed with different plant fossils and then on top you have a marine sediment so it's kind of a way to describe how you got all these hypsilophodons and a lot of them are really well preserved they have pretty delicate skulls that get preserved that you wouldn't expect because you'd think a predator or a scavenger would come by and chomp on it 
They have like tendons preserved in situ and all sorts of cool stuff like that. So probably mass burials due to this type of flooding. And in other dinosaur fossil news, the Willow Creek Formation in southwest Alberta had more dinosaurs than we could previously show. And previously we only knew three specific dinosaurs, so we have found T-Rex, a Hadrosaur, and a small Ceratopsian. And those weren't even that complete, so we weren't doing great on fossils from the area. But researchers just found a bunch of dinosaur eggs in the area, and that included, quote, at least two ornithopod and five small theropod species, likely including dromaeosaurids, oviraptorosaurs, and truodontids, end quote. So a much more diverse group than we were able to find just from the fossils. And it's a pretty good example of how eggs can be useful in paleontology, since bones aren't always well preserved in an area. But if you can find eggs, you might be able to learn a little bit more about the diversity. Yeah, although... When we went digging, there's just pieces of eggshells. Yeah. So that can be difficult too. Yeah. And one of the people we were digging with was like, I hate these eggshells because it's these <laughs> little tiny fragments. I have no idea how people put those back together. It's like the most awful jigsaw puzzle of all time. <laughs> it's like four millimeter by four millimeter pieces and just thousands of them. But it's important. And sometimes even just a little tiny fragment can give you a clue about what species it might be, or at least which, you know, general category of dinosaur it might be. Yeah, although I remember there being, like, they could tell the hadrosaurs by the bumpiness, but then there was some, like, wavy-looking ones, and it was just unknown dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to link them together, because you kind of have to find a dinosaur on its nest or something in order to be sure which one it comes from. And even then, like, uh, oviraptors. Yeah, <laughs> might get blamed for just trying to eat them. Yeah. <laughs> And we also have some more dinosaur footprints that were discovered. These were in Western Australia in the city of Broome. The area has been under added scrutiny lately as locals are looking for a spot for a marina. And apparently they were going back and forth with like some Aboriginal group or something, trying to figure out if they had rights to build there and things like that. And now people are upset because, well, there's also dinosaur footprints and now we won't be able to build there anyway. And we've been trying for like 30 years. But <laughs> the footprints are part of a national heritage site and the nonprofit Dinosaur Coast Management Group, or DCMG, looks after the prints. And one of the members just found even more tracks while walking among the 400 plus known sauropod tracks along the beach. So they're all kind of on this beach area in Western Australia, and they have a group of volunteers basically that educates the public and looks after their preservation. And the DCMG spokeswoman, Jan Lewis, said, quote, because it's such a dynamic environment, the sands shift seasonally and new tracks are being discovered all the time, end quote, which is really cool that... You could just walk along the beach and you might find a new sauropod track that nobody's ever seen before. I'm kind of surprised they haven't had a big group out there trying to map all of them and really get it all down. But I guess depending on what kind of area it's in, it might be really impractical to move the sand around. Maybe you can't get the right equipment there. Maybe they just don't have the money for it. And there might still be a marina built in the area, but they're going to have to work around the dinosaur tracks. Hmm. And it makes me a little bit nervous because if they're still finding them all the time, 
even if you work around the dinosaur tracks that you know, you might end up building through some that you haven't found yet. So I think it's going to take a little more effort before they can figure out a good spot for this marina. Many more years of debate. <laughs> yeah, a couple more decades that they can have one. But it's probably worth it. You don't want to destroy these completely unrecoverable dinosaur footprints so someone can park a boat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are other marinas around, right? They're the only dinosaur footprints in Western Australia, so. Mm, that we know of. Yeah, we know of several marinas, though. Speaking of dinosaur footprints, there's a 300 foot or about 92 meter tall, one mile or 1.6 kilometer long wall in Bolivia, and it's got more than 5,000 dinosaur footprints. Way to be a one-upper. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It's made of limestone, and it has footprints from at least eight different dinosaur species from 68 million years ago. So the wall is in a limestone quarry owned by Bolivia's National Cement Factory. And just up the hill is a dinosaur museum, Parque Cretacico. And it has a viewing platform of the wall of footprints. So Ian Belcher, who visited in 2015, said, quote, It was unique climate fluctuations that made the region a paleontological honeypot. <laughs> the creature's feet sank into the soft shoreline in warm, damp weather, leaving marks that were solidified by later periods of drought. Wet weather then returned, sealing the prints below mud and sediment. The wet-dry pattern was repeated seven times, preserving multiple layers of prints. The cherry on the cake was added when tectonic activity pushed the flat ground up to a brilliant viewing angle, as if nature was aware of its tourism potential. (laughs) (laughs) That's just great. So you can see, um, for an example, baby T-Rex tracks for about 1,200 feet or 365 meters along the wall. Jeez, that's a long ways. Yeah. That's a pretty awesome view they've got. Yeah, that's really cool. It is always weird when the geology shifts and it shoves footprints up onto a wall like that, though. Yep. Speaking of T-Rexes, so I don't know if you remember, there was a documentary called T-Rex Autopsy aired about a year, year and a half ago. What was it? Like four different people, different professions, basically performing an autopsy on this T-Rex, and they built it as lifelike as possible including the smells yeah and they like filled it with lots of blood and stuff it's yep. like kind of latexy yeah a lot of work went into that t-rex so it's not going to waste which is good and it was built by national geographic and a whole team of paleontologists and scientists so now that t-rex is going to Illawarra, Australia, and it was donated to the Australian Museum after filming was done, and it's on a tour of shopping centers in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) So the first stop is Shell Harbor, and it's traveling to teach people more about dinosaurs, like how birds are dinosaurs, and the fact that humans and non-avian dinosaurs didn't coexist, like in the Flintstones, so (laughs) things like that. And the tour will include National Geographic footage and dinosaur activities, (laughs) which they listed a dinosaur dance party. I don't know what that entails, but it sounds fun. Egg excavation, a VR experience, and construction activities. So this T-Rex looks a bit scary up close, as you can imagine. I wonder if they made it smell better. But anyway, there's a warning that it's for kids ages 8 and up. I didn't remember the thing about them making it smell. I do. Because I remember the reactions, too, when they opened up certain parts. They wanted the the full reactions for TV. And I think they didn't tell them about the smells, either. (laughs) They wanted them to treat it like a real autopsy. That's fun. (laughs) (laughs) 
Thanks to Patrick for sharing this one with us on Facebook. Jurassica just received a grant to help them produce their Mesozoic recreation. And just as a quick reminder, Jurassica is a quarry where they're planning to put an enormous roof over the top and then put some robotic dinosaurs and maybe marine reptiles in it and make like basically like a Jurassic Park situation, but in England. And it would be super awesome. It was in the news because they just got 37,300 pounds from a heritage lottery fund. They estimate the cost of building Jurassica at about 80 million pounds. I'm not sure how much they've raised so far, but obviously they need to raise some more money before they'll get there. And I'm really glad that they're still moving forward on the project since their founder passed away last year and it kind of dropped out of the news for a while. It had been in there quite a bit with David Attenborough giving support and other people. They had new board members coming on and things. Might have been unclear about what direction it was going. Yeah. So they were hoping to finish a plan by the end of last year, I think. And I think they've pushed it back to the end of this year, specifically about, you know, how they're going to lay out the park and get people in and where the trails are going and all that kind of stuff. So I'm super excited about this thing. If this ever gets made, we're definitely going to it because <laughs> it sounds amazing. We say that about a lot of things. But this is like the coolest dinosaur attraction anybody's <laughs> ever talked about, I think. So I really hope that it keeps going forward. They keep getting more grant money and things like that. Yep. So also cool things happening in the UK. They had this amazing sounding National Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics Week. And so one school in North Yorkshire brought in Trixie the Triceratops, who uh, in the picture that I saw, that looks really similar to the T-Rex from T-Rex Autopsy, mostly because you see some blood. Huh. In the picture, there's a teacher holding a knife over this bleeding Triceratops Jeez. with the kids around it, touching it and looking at it. They don't look phased at all. Huh. So they spent a week solving the mystery of why Triceratops went extinct. And they were given rocks and fossils as clues, and then they had to come up with a conclusion and present their evidence, and apparently they came up with a good one. Interesting. Man, kids are so desensitized these days. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I got out of that story. <laughs> well, who knows how many of the kids actually worked on it and how many ended up in the picture. Oh, that's true, yeah. Next, the Field Museum in Chicago has a blog series highlighting women in science. The latest one interviews Akiko Shinya, the chief preparator of fossil vertebrates. And she said that she started as a volunteer in the paleobiology lab at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, Canada. And her current job involves preparing fossils for research, making molds and casts, doing field work, and talking to visitors as well as supervising her lab. And she said highlights include discovering her own dinosaur, Gualicho Shinye, which yeah. we've talked about. And I think we mentioned that it was named after her at the time. Mm -hmm. And she's going to Antarctica this year. So she says her advice for future scientists is to just try things out and don't hesitate to ask for help. So I think that's a really cool series you can highlight. Like, how, how did somebody get here and how could I replicate that if mm -hmm. I wanted to get there? Yeah, that's cool. Next, Nature shared some tips for how to make field research fun for your team. It's a pretty interesting read. So things almost never go as planned on expeditions. So it's good to be organized and be able to adapt to changes. And this means, you know, securing permits, filing paperwork ahead of time, handing out gear lists to newcomers. And it also helps to establish connections with locals ahead of time who can help. So some tips for keeping the team happy while in the field include making sure there's lots of good food 
and doing team bonding experiences. Apparently one team does this extreme dining society where they dress in black tie and have gourmet picnic dinners in places like Icelandic underground lava tube caves and sandbars off the coast of Belize. Hmm. (laughs) Sounds pretty epic. It's also important to keep tabs on the mood of your team and know when to quit when conditions become too dangerous. So all good things. I really like that extreme dining society idea. Would that fall under the category of a time to quit when things become too dangerous? You are in a lava tube yeah. underground. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the specifics. <laughs> I haven't been on these kinds of expeditions. <laughs> yeah, I guess danger is relative. Yeah. Next, there's a new dinosaur book by John Pickrell called Weird Dinosaurs, The Strange New Fossils Challenging Everything We Thought We Knew. So National Post had a write-up about the book and shared some key takeaways, including the fact that some dinosaurs probably had feathers and scales, that dinosaurs could adapt to their conditions, for example, become smaller on islands in, quote, as rapidly as within 10 to 20 generations, as observed in deer released onto the Shetland Islands in Scotland. And there's also a number of animals named after celebrities. Apparently there's a dinosaur named Masiacosaurus, Knopflerai, named after Dire Straits, Mark Knopfler. And there's an ancient mammal named Gagadon Minimonstrum, after Lady Gaga. <laughs> and that sounds a little bit like mini monster at the end, but... Yeah, Gagadon. That's mm-hmm. silly. It's <laughs> too bad that one wasn't a dinosaur. Yeah. Next, thanks to Brendan who shared this one with us via Facebook. So Denver Zoo posted about dinosaurs taking over their zoo this summer with the traveling exhibit Dinos Live at Denver Zoo. And it's going to run from July 1st to October 21st and visitors can see 21 life-sized dinosaurs, 19 of which are animatronic. And they already have one dinosaur out in front of the zoo. It's a large striped Carnotaurus. Apparently the kids love it. There's like hundreds of people commenting on their Facebook and their kids taking pictures and just staring at it. Next, the 1970 movie When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth is now out on Blu-ray from the Warner Archive. And Nerdist wrote a really interesting review. and I think we're going to have to add that to our list of old dinosaur movies to watch. So it's about humans and stop-motion dinosaurs before humans ruled Earth, according to the trailer. The trailer's pretty interesting. (laughs) Anyway, the studio that made it made it after its success with One Million Years B.C., And in the movie, there's two tribes of cave people, one who sacrifices blonde women to the sun gods, and one of these blonde women is named Sana, and she escapes the sacrifice, and then a man named Tara from the second tribe finds her, and he takes her back to his village, which is then attacked by an aquatic prehistoric creature. I'm not calling it a dinosaur on purpose, I think that's what they called it in the trailer or in the review. Anyway, they fight off the creature, and then they have a feast, and that leads to infighting of the second tribe due to jealousy of having this newcomer, Asana, to the tribe. There's one woman in particular, uh, Ayuk, who's jealous because she's in love with Tara. So there's a fight, and then Sana's tribe arrives, and she escapes again by hiding in an empty dinosaur egg shell next to another egg. And then that egg hatches, and out comes this fictitious quadrupedal carnivore that (laughs) thinks that Sana is its sibling. And Sana eventually reunites with Tara, but then there's another fight when Sana's tribe comes after her again. I haven't seen the movie yet, as I mentioned, but apparently the dinosaur stop motion is really good. And according to Nerdist, that is definitely the reason this movie is worth a watch. So there's sequences of Chasmosaurus 
Ramphorhynchus, which is a pterosaur, and a giant anaconda. And there's also a shot of a real lizard that's made to look like a real dinosaur. Apparently, this movie is not for kids, though. There's nudity and a lot of sex scenes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That is such a crazy plot. It's hard to like follow by listening to it because there's so many different people and different yeah. things coming out of nowhere. I think we have to watch it and then really appreciate the dinosaurs. <laughs> I guess so. But yeah, quadrupedal carnivore. Yeah. <laughs> well, like maybe Spinosaurus was like that. It's hard to say if it was quadrupedal or not. It kind of goes back and forth, but... Yeah, but uh, the picture made it look like a sauropod with teeth. Oh, yeah. That is a common weird movie trope. (laughs) Speaking of dinosaurs in the media, The Sun wrote a piece about the man who played Barney the Dinosaur, the show from back in the 90s, which apparently ran through early 2000s. I had no idea, but... Anyway, his name is David Joyner, and he was Barney from 1992 until 2002, and then another production company took over, so he was no longer Barney. And he's an actor who's also been in House, that 70s show, Hip Hop Harry, and 24. He's originally from Illinois, he's now 53 years old, and although he wore the Barney costume, there was another actor, Bob West, who voiced Barney. Huh. So it's just like Jim Henson's Dinosaurs TV show, and you have multiple people working and the yeah. same character. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess that's kind of how it is with animation, too. Mm-hmm. Somebody draws them and then another person voices them. Yeah. Next up, Microsoft created a tool for the HoloLens called ActionGram. And the idea is to allow people to add CGI effects to real-world scenes without having to animate on a computer. And if you're not familiar, HoloLens is an augmented reality headset. Basically, you wear it over your glasses if you have glasses or whatever and it projects light onto clear lenses so it looks like things are in the environment with you it's kind of like pokemon go if you're using the ar version where it looks like there's things around you in the world except since this is on your eyes it's supposed to look even more realistic and then when you use this application you can pick different animations out of the action gram application and like put them into the real world and resize them and animate them and stuff so some of them involve a t-rex and one of the videos that's been uploaded to the site is a young girl trying to train a giant t-rex in a park oh yeah that was a funny one (laughs) she keeps yelling at him like to do something or other and then he just roars back and then eventually he's oh she's trying to get him to sit Mm mm-hmm And then eventually he does it, and then she feeds him a goat. Yeah. And it ends with just the sound of the goat. Yep. It was a pretty funny one. Bit dark, I guess, but... Yeah, it'll be cool to see what other things people come up with if they add other dinosaurs. And I really like the idea of dinosaurs in augmented reality. There's a lot of cool stuff you could do with that. We talked about that park in New Zealand that made a... Yeah, the game. Yeah. It's definitely better when you have it on a hollow lens kind mm-hmm. of display than having it just on a phone where you hold it up. Although if you get scared. <laughs> That's true. Speaking of playing with dinosaurs, in Manchester in the UK, they're getting a new crazy mini golf course with life-size animatronic dinosaurs. So it's going to be a nine-hole course at the Bent's Garden Center, and it's going to open up in April to the public. Tickets cost about five pounds for adults, four pounds for kids. Three pounds if you're only under four years, which sounds pretty good. Yeah. 
Next, a new Hena hotel opened in Japan in mid-March with a robotic dinosaur manning the front desk and offering concierge services, <laughs> which I can only imagine how that would actually play out. That is pretty weird. Yeah. Hena means strange in Japanese. That's so, fitting. There you go. <laughs> and the new hotel has 100 rooms, and it's right by Tokyo Disneyland. Um, they're hoping to get some of the same guests over, I guess. So each room has an egg-shaped robot who can answer questions and do simple tasks, like tell you the weather. And there's also a motorized talking garbage can. <laughs> and all of the robots speak Japanese, English, Chinese, and Korean. HIS Co. designed the hotel, and it's their second robot-powered hotel. And they have plans to open 100 more over the next five years, hopefully with more dinosaurs. Yeah. Man, that's funny. Talking garbage can. Does it, like, thank you for throwing things away like that tree and... Remember that recycling tree at Ocean Park? Oh, maybe. And I wonder <laughs> if it's smart enough to know the difference between trash and recycling. Yeah, don't put that in here. <laughs> put that in the recycling bin. Next, more companies are coming out that offer performers in dinosaur costumes for parties and events. So the latest is Wild Dinosaurs Entertainment. And that one's based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Their costumes are all custom made, and they even have a six-month-old T-Rex, a three-week-old Triceratops, and a baby Velociraptor. And I know they all sound young, but if you think about the size of a three-week-old Triceratops, I think that's a pretty decent size. Yeah. So the company plans to educate and entertain, and so they share facts about dinosaurs and New Mexico history at their events. I wonder if they go to Tucumcari. That was a cool museum. Maybe. Next up, thanks to Blaze on Patreon for sharing this one with us. There's a website, Fossilera, that has fossil Easter eggs for sale, in case you're planning an Easter egg hunt with some dinosaur enthusiasts. They have various common fossils like shark, megalodon, and dinosaur teeth, because like we say, dinosaurs are constantly making teeth, so there's just tons of dinosaur teeth fossils all over the place. They also have ammonites, trilobites, and some other common bits they have a three-pack of these egg fossil things for 15 bucks, or you can get a 12-pack for 49 bucks. I'm not really sure how that compares to the cost of the fossils by themselves. If you're interested in doing this, you could probably just buy some common fossils and the plastic eggs and assemble them yourself <laughs> if you can get the fossils cheaper. But it's kind of a cool idea. I would have been really into it as a kid mm -hmm. if rather than getting candy, I was getting little fossils. So if you have a kid and you're trying not to give them junk food, that could be a good move. Yeah. And last in the news, Horizon Zero Dawn has a dinosaur fight club, or at least that's <laughs> the title of one article and that pretty much says it all. Except this one you can talk about. Yeah. <laughs> you can post it on YouTube, apparently. Yeah. So, as a reminder, Horizon Zero Dawn is that post-post-apocalyptic game with robotic <laughs> dinosaurs. And in these videos, you can kind of, like, pit them against each other and see which one would win in a fight, as people like to argue about all the time. They're not really real dinosaurs. They're all, they all have made-up names, and they're not, you know, it's not just like a T-Rex and a Velociraptor. They're all combinations, and a lot of them have guns and different mm. things on them. But it is kind of enjoyable like to watch. Like Transformer dinosaurs. Yeah, they're very much like Transformers. So, yeah, I bet if I was playing that game, I'd probably try that out. <laughs> and post it on YouTube. <laughs> Maybe not that. I don't know. <laughs> and as a reminder, we're $15 away from our $200 mark when we're going to send stickers to everybody. And they're really cool. It's like a T-Rex head kind of sticking out of the edge of the sticker. They're fancy die cut 
Yeah, so stickers. the teeth are cut out. Yeah, and Sabrina and I have them on our laptops and other various things because we really like them. <laughs> and they say, I know Dino on them. It's the same logo that you've probably seen. So if you're interested in getting in on that, make sure you join our community on Patreon. And if you can, leave us a review on iTunes, help us grow, help us get some more sponsors. We'd really appreciate it. Yeah. And now on to our interview with Dr. Thomas Hegna and Robert Johnson that's all about 3D printing dinosaur fossils. We're joined this week by Dr. Thomas Hegna, assistant professor at Western Illinois University, and he specializes in invertebrates, specifically arthropods, as well as Robert Johnson, curator of the Geology Museum at WIU and the artist who makes the awesome dinosaur 3D prints we're going to talk about. So jumping right in, you guys both wrote an awesome paper explaining how to take some readily available CT scans and then turn them into 3D prints. How'd you get started on that project? I would say the way we got started on it is the fact that the university got a 3D printer and we had a resource <laughs> that was available to us and by God, we were going to use it. I started out, the first thing that I printed was a microfossil that I'd been working on and had a CT scan of handy. Uh, so we just printed that off, and it was a really neat thing to be able to print something that is microscopic, printed at a size that you can hold in your hand. With 3D printing, you can play with the size that you print things at so that you can see tiny things or more easily visualize very, very large things at a scale that we're used to working with. That's awesome. How did you scan something so small? A micro CT scanner. Oh, it was actually micro a friend of mine that did the scanning, uh, but the micro CT scanner did it. That's really cool. How big, like how many times did you magnify it? It's probably increased about 100 times. Oh, wow. That's really cool. I like the ability to 3D print something so small, really big. I saw some really interesting ones of like blood vessels and stuff that people do, where it's something that even if you could, you know, see it at scale, it's like in somebody's body. So there's no way you could ever just isolate that little piece. There's so many awesome applications. I've also done this with some small Shelley fossils from the Cambrian. There's a researcher in the UK who's been doing some, his research group has been doing some synchrotron CT scanning of these tiny, tiny, uh, small Shelley fossils. And I pleaded with him to get some of the CT scans. And he graciously sent them to me and I turned them into models that we could print out. And of course, printed them at, you know, a hundred times their real size. But now this, my students are able to visualize those in lab. Even if you have real fossils of the small shelly fossils, uh, they're not terribly enlightening because they're so tiny. Yeah, that's really neat. Is that one of your favorite prints so far or something else stand out as a favorite? My favorite print? Um, I think the ones that I've done with Bob are my favorite prints just because they are the most impressive. They're the largest <laughs> and the prettiest and I think the most interesting, most charismatic. Those are a set of three vertebrate prints that we did. They're printed using some models that we actually purchased online. There's a Tylosaurus that we printed, um, which is a type of Mosasaur. Mm -hmm. There is a animal distantly related to crocodilians called Smilosuchus, a Chasmatosaur that we printed. And then I was able to get a model of a weird giant wombat from a colleague in Australia. She had done some CT scanning on it to look at the evolution of its nasal cavities she was gracious enough to allow us to print it. So I 
dare say we're the only university in the Northern Hemisphere that has a diprotodon skull as a result, full-sized. That's really cool. You should have just scaled it up like 10% just so you could say you have the biggest one. (laughs) Well, because of the printer size, we actually ended up having to scale the Mosasaur and Smilosuchus down by about half. Oh, no. Just to save on the material costs. They're still ridiculously large (laughs) because they would have been close to five feet or so long if we printed them at full size. So having them as three feet long is still pretty impressive. Does that mean you were just going through like reels and reels of filament? We did abuse the 3D printer a little bit, Um, and they ended up having to make a rule about we had to buy our own filament. Oh, that makes sense. Plus, it takes a long time for it to print. Yes. We have a MakerBot printer, a couple different types of MakerBot printers, and they've taken as much as a week to print individual parts. That week-long time frame was for parts of the Diprotodon skull, uh, which we printed in, uh, I believe, about six parts for the upper part of the skull and three or six parts for the jaw. Wow. So how do you plan out which parts and how big you're going to make them? Is it just you cut off when the bed is full, you know, like the maximum size, and then you work from there? Or do you try to pick a spot that will look clean and you can kind of hide well? I do the latter. I try to pick a spot that's clean and will hide well. What I do is do some planning. I take the whole model and put it into a program called Sketchfab, which basically allows me to use a giant meat cleaver to cut it up into slices. (laughs) It cuts it up into nice, you know, orthogonal square cuts. And so what I do is I try to plan out how big the print area is on the 3D printer and how many pieces I need to cut it into to get each piece to individually fit there. One of the things that I've been doing frequently is cutting the models in half along their plane of symmetry, so kind of you know, right down the nose. And what that allows us to do is put that side down hmm. on the printer bed, and as a result, it doesn't print so many supports. Oh, okay. Supports that you then have to remove, and, and so we put it together, there's less scarring from the supports that print. And the supports that there are are kind of on the inside that way. Right, and you can just leave those there, or... As I've done before, used a forceps and tried to rip them out of a brain case of a tiny elephant we printed. <laughs> That's great. There's something cathartic about removing the supports from the inside of an elephant's brain case with a forceps. Yeah. So you just made a, a miniature elephant skull? Yes. It's about the size of my two fists put together. Oh, that's really cool. So as you can imagine, there's some ways you can play with allometry with this. I've got a tiny alligator skull that I've printed off. Uh, that I've got to compare with a full-sized alligator skull that we've also printed off. Hmm. I've got a tiny human skull, which I bought on eBay. Uh, I would recommend that you always check the size of skulls when you buy them on eBay. Uh, but then I've got that to compare with a infant chimpanzee skull. They're both about the same size. And what's remarkable about those is the infant chimpanzee skull is really pretty similar in shape to a human skull, but radically different in size. And it's all the changes that happen through ontogeny are what create the adult that's strikingly different from the uh, adult human. <laughs> the best thing about that statement was if you're buying skulls on eBay, you should check the size. I thought you were going to say, like, check where they're coming from to make sure you're not just, like, buying some, you know, dug up body or something. Buy American. Yeah. No, I've got a, a model hobbit skull, essentially. Oh, that's cool. 
So I think the coolest thing in your paper that really surprised me that it was even possible is that you can take a CT scan video that I think just about everybody has seen where it goes slice by slice, but rapid fire, and you can turn that into a 3D print. Can you describe that process a little bit? Well, I think we'll describe this in two parts. I'll take the first part because I always handle the 3D processing, and then I'll turn it over to Bob and we'll talk about the more physical aspects of processing the print. What I do is I take the video and download it, and I use a program called NIH Image to turn that video into a folder full of slices, basically dissect that video into the individual frames. Hmm. And so I've got a folder full of TIFF images that if I scrolled through them, they would make that video. Then I use a program called Spears Edit. Spears Edit is a program for taking that picture data and turning it into a 3D model. With Spears Edit, I tell the computer which pixels to put into my model. And it does that by creating a separate folder full of images, one image corresponding to each of the frames in my flipbook folder that I made. And in that separate folder that corresponds to that, each frame gets highlighted where the pixels that I want in my model are. And so then I can export those pixels to another program called Spears View. Uh, these Pieces of software, Spears View, NIH image are freely available. Nice. And the Spears View program renders it in 3D. It gives you the model that you can kind of turn around and, and spin and look at. When you're just doing the model of a skull or any bone that's been scanned with a CT scanner, it's usually pretty easy because there's a high amount of contrast between not bone and bone. It's a lot more difficult when you're trying to do it with a fossil that's in rock. Oh, yeah. Because the contrast between the rock and the bone or fossil is a lot more subtle. And it, you really have to pay attention to the program Spears edit. And you often have to use some amount of interpretation in order to bring those elements out. And, you know, when that shade of gray is a fossil versus when it's rock. So how many slices are there? I mean, I, I could see if you were doing that micro CT scan of something that's a couple millimeters it might not give you that many slices, but if you're doing a micro CT scan of, you know, that Tylosaurus or something, how many slices do you end up with on that file in that folder? The Tylosaurus, because we purchased that as a 3D model, I never had to deal with the slices for that. Okay, that's good. Um, so the ones that I've dealt with slices for are things that are on the website Digimorph, which is the University of Texas at Austin's portal for their CT scanned images of fossils and bones and other things. Hmm. And I think the most that I've dealt with from there is maybe 3,000 slices. Wow. How long does that take to go through all that? It depends. If it's a simple model where there's high contrast between not fossil and fossil or not bone and bone, um, I can get that done in you know 30 minutes regardless of its size. Hmm. But if it's a complex one that can take days two weeks. That's still not that bad. We talked to Jesse Pruitt from the Idaho Virtualization Lab a little Mm -hmm. while ago, and he said it can take him up to a year to turn a CT scan into a 3D model. And I think part of that is that he's dealing with like fragmentary pieces and he has to kind of put it all back together digitally. So you're mostly talking about you've got something totally intact and then you're turning that into a 3D print, right? Right. I cannot digitally animate I cannot fix or repair the elements that we're dealing with. I can only take 
what's present in the CT scan and turn it into a printable model. Gotcha. So that's my limitation. Even when they have things that superficially look like they should be easily fixable, I can't. Yeah, I could see how it almost might be easier to like 3D print fragments, glue them back together, or sculpt them into shape, and then rescan that and do it over again or something. That seems like it'd be easier to me. Well, we've definitely done some repair work like that. It's a lot easier for Bob to do the repair work than it is for me to do it because he's got the sculptural and artistic tools to do that, whereas I don't have the computer skills to handle that. Yeah. So going back to your question before about moving from movie to 3D model, kind of the next step is using Spears View to take the uh, model and export it to a format that can be used by a 3D printer. I usually use STL files. And if the model is the same size or smaller than the print area printer, you're good to go. If you need to cut it up, however, I use Sketchfab. Mm -hmm. Sketchfab is a program that I believe was free, but I think it is no longer free. And what Sketchfab allows you to do is to slice the model up into pieces so you can print a very large thing in pieces and then glue it together as part of the post-processing. So things like the Tylosaur that we printed up, even though we got that as a ready-to-use model, because of the scaling of it, I had to slice it up into about 12 pieces in order to print it. You didn't have a 5 foot by 5 foot 3D printer handy? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. If we did, there would be a host of other different things I'd be printing as well. <laughs> as I said before, uh, when I talked about supports, even if we could print something that was 5 feet long, I still might opt to slice it in half straight down the nose so we've got two surfaces to glue together. Hmm. Uh, those two surfaces would be the downside when you print. Hmm. And as a result, it wouldn't print so many supports. And then you have a nice flat surface to glue together on the other side. Yeah, I guess that's a... a for the most part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is some distortion that happens that's almost inevitable with the, the printer. And Bob always has to sand the faces together so they fit a little more cleanly. Hmm. I suppose I should explain a little bit about the supports that print. The 3D printer can't just print out into air. It has to print a sort of scaffolding around the object that you're printing in order to support it. And you can imagine that that scaffolding is very different if you put something that has a flat face down versus putting something like a mosasaur jaw teeth down. Then you'd have to have all the supports around the teeth printed in order to hold that model above the floor of the 3D printer. Each of those supports tends to leave kind of a little scar where you pull it off. They're, they tend to be fairly easy to break off, uh, but sometimes you've got to use a Dremel to remove them. Hmm. And the more you can reduce the amount of scaffolding that you have, the better your resulting print will be. Yeah, really cool. So I think you said Bob took over at some point after yes. you've interpreted all the scans. What's Where does he start? Well, I usually start when they start bringing me the pieces. <laughs> In essence, if you have, say, a simple skull, let's say a human skull, and it's uh, split down the center, what you find is you have a flat side. It's the base where it was printed. And this is reasonably smooth, but unfortunately, it's not really smooth enough. So what I do is I take a standard sheet of, say, 150 Henry paper and uh, spray cement and put it on a piece of quarter-inch glass so that I have a smooth surface. And then I will take and work that in a figure-eight pattern or circular pattern lightly for 
five, ten minutes to take off any rough imperfections that are on that flat surface. Hmm. And this can actually, and you do this to both surfaces because you're making the two together. What this does is it allows you to close up that gap and hopefully get rid of any imperfections because uh, it seems that the larger the pieces are, the more distortion you're likely to get. Or if you have something that's longer, say, for example, a, a long crocodile, uh, jaw like a gharial, they may not match completely. So sanding that out helps clean that up. After that is cleaned up, I usually go back and I drill some usually eighth-inch holes in the size, oh, five or six on each side, uh, say if it was a human skull. And this is a place for the epoxy to sort of hook on the inside so that you're not just flat gluing things. It gives it a place for the stuff to sort of ooze through and hmm. make a better bond. Usually five-minute epoxy is all that's necessary. If clamping it is necessary, uh, do that. Most of the time, it's not. You can just hold it really tight for about 10 minutes. Wipe off any excess, of course, before it sets up. And when they are locked together, you go ahead and put on any other pieces that are necessary. When those pieces are complete, and you have all the uh, sections of the skull the way you want them, I usually go back and use an epoxy putty, something simple like white plumber's putty. It doesn't take very much, uh, probably a Oh, something the size of a jawbreaker is fairly slow curing, so you don't know, have to look too fast. But mix that up, and I use a little small rubber uh, spatula and fill in the suture areas. Because what you find is that when it's printed, there's a slight rounding of the edge between the base plate and the actual surface uh. going around. And so you want to fill that up just enough so that it's leveled off. So that's filled in, and you take say a finger that's wetted with a little alcohol and smooth that out. If you have any imperfections, sometimes you get rough patches for whatever reason. Maybe it's in the file, maybe it's just the way the printer acts. Uh, you can also put some of this putty over that and it can smooth it out. It makes it look a little nicer in the long run. Nice. After that's done, if you have to sand it, you can. Uh, usually, like I say, smoothing with alcohol is sufficient. I would use a material called XTC3D. <laughs> uh, it's, a, yeah, it's a funny name for this stuff. And it's weird because if you look at the packaging, they have this human skull that's orange. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I think the idea is that they're trying to point out that you can tint this stuff. It's a two-part epoxy. You only need about an ounce at a time because it sets reasonably quick. You have about a 10, 15-minute operating window before it starts to gel. And uh, you paint that on there. What it does is it fills up all the little uh, lines between the points where it's been printed out. Oh, cool. And it sort of smooths out the whole thing. So it works reasonably well. Uh, the only downside is that if you get over ambitious with it, it will rut. It self-levels very nicely. But over the hour that it's curing, sometimes you can get little drips. And those can be easily removed. The Dremel with a little drum sander on it, and so that's not usually a problem, particularly on larger skulls. You can't tint it. They tend to be sort of on the transparent side, so I haven't used those as much because it has a tendency to sort of highlight visually the lines that are underneath the epoxy. It's kind of defeating the purpose. Well, kind of, yeah. So what I've 
take them to New England after I tried that once or twice. It is kind of nice though because it allows you, if you work on something large, if you tint it, it's easier to see where you've put the epoxy as opposed to where you have it. Oh, true. But after you have it completely covered and it's cured and you've cleaned it up, I usually go back and give it a shot of white primer. The white primer because it's flat and covers up a multitude of sins. It visually makes the surface smoother and easier to detect any imperfections. So you can go back again either with more of the XTC 3D or with epoxy. You can use that to fill in any imperfections or to recreate some areas that uh, didn't work out as well. We've had a few prints where it was like the printer didn't quite know what to do with the area, particularly about the really thin section of palatal ridges or things like that. It's sometimes easier just to clean those out and then rebuild it by hand. And then once you have everything the way you want it, it's painted white. Then it's just a question of using uh, appropriate colors and uh, techniques to make it look like a fossil. So it looked in your paper like you usually paint trying to simulate that it was like a fossil, you know, kind of that brown rock color. <laughs> do you ever do other colors to like, you ever just leave it white so it looks like a bone or something? Uh, yeah, the last uh, three or four that we worked on were yeah. recent creatures. I think the uh, alligator was one that I was particularly happy with. And essentially we were using a uh, very light wash of using yellow ochre and uh, paint gray and just give that a brush coat and then let it sit for a few minutes and then just wipe it a little bit more, let it dry, come back, get another wash until you get it as dark as you want. And then, of course, you want to go back in and redo the teeth. If they're very old teeth, they're probably yellow a little bit. <laughs> if they're fairly modern, you can go back in and uh, hit them with a gloss white so they stand out against the bone. So, again, you can get as nuts with this as you want, quite honestly. Well, one that I think you did a really good job on is the print of the Tom Child that we did. Mm -hmm. Tom Child is kind of a famous skull from South Africa. What it is is it's the facial region of the skull plus an endocast of the brain case. Mm -hmm. And so what Bob did is he painted the facial part of the skull differently than the endocast. The endocast, he just kind of did a, a reddish sediment color for that versus the kind of whitish-yellowish color for the bone. And then kind of shadowed in the, the eye sockets and shadowed in around some of the teeth as well. Really turned out nice. Yeah, that's really cool. The reason I was thinking about that was I was just rewatching Jurassic Park. You know, they have that big atrium area with the big T-Rex. And I was thinking, looking at it, hey, why are they using a T-Rex fossil? It seems like they could easily get a T-Rex skeleton and just mount that. <laughs> and oh, yeah. that led me down a whole train of thought about 3D printing. <laughs> well, I think we're going to come to a point for replicas in museums, we're going to have 3D printers that will be of a quality that you can just put it straight out into the museum. The yeah. printer that we're using is not the high-quality printer. It prints things so that there are sort of topographic layers to it. It is a plastic extruder printer. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what we're doing is trying to hide the nature of that printer. And I think we're being uh, very successful at it with Bob's artistry. As I recall, that large whale specimen from South America was 3D printed. Yes. Oh, wow. To the best of my knowledge, they didn't do anything to it after it was done. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the name of the scientist right now. He's a whale paleontologist at the Smithsonian. He was part of a team that uh, worked on a whale graveyard in the Atacama Desert in South America. And this whale graveyard was discovered while they were trying to put a road through. 
And so they had a very <laughs> small amount of time to remove everything. And what they did is they did a lot of 3D scanning of the surfaces where the whales were exposed and then rapidly removed all of the remains. So they were preserving the orientation of everything with 3D scanning, but then also the bones by removing them. And what they were able to do is, yeah, I think there's a conference room in the Smithsonian somewhere that now has a full-size mount of the skeleton on the wall that was done by 3D printing the scan that they did. If you go to the Smithsonian's 3D website, you can download the scans of these whales. That is awesome. I love all that Smithsonian stuff. I'm really excited about their new dinosaur hall they're opening up in, I think, two years now. Mm-hmm. But they have to, they had a lot of things that kind of similar to what you're saying, where, you know, they hastily excavated stuff and then they wanted to put it on display really quickly and they never had a chance to go back and fully excavate the thing. Whereas you could imagine if they had 3D printing, they could have put a quick 3D print up and then kept working on the original. That's really neat. Exactly. And I've heard of cases where people have uh, actually used the 3D printing to print out fossils which were never removed from the matrix and study mm. them that way. The Digimorph website has the scan of an elephant bird egg, I believe, and they were able to remove the bones of the embryonic elephant bird from the egg without actually getting into the egg. <laughs> That's really neat. Yeah, I, I know there's one dinosaur like that too, or maybe it turned out to be a bird. It went back and forth. I don't remember if it started as a bird and turned into a dinosaur. I mean, all birds are dinosaurs anyway, but (laughs) it is really cool that stuff you can do with CT scanning where you can actually look inside things, especially if you get like a high power synchrotron or something. Right. Have you, I've been holding a 3D model of a T-Rex skull in my hands the whole time (laughs) with the little ridges on it. And when you mentioned how, you know, that's kind of the issue with things like the MakerBot or these other plastic deposition 3D printers. But then there's another type called stereolithography, where it's kind of lasers intersecting in goop that kind of Mm -hmm. cure on a a finer detail. Have you guys ever gotten a chance to play with one of those? No, we've toyed with contributing to a Kickstarter for a uh, resin-based printer like that, but we've never played with one of them. I've kind of wanted to, but not had the resources to play with one of them. They, they look really neat. I think the plastic deposition is so close to being at that scale, but it's just off. I think it's like 100 micron accuracy compared with 25 micron, but that difference is like the human perception of smooth, it seems like. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, that was the process that they used for uh, reproducing the Alpine Man. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a note special about that a while back, but yeah, they the entire uh, file was done essentially in you know, fat and it was raised up. Kind of brings to mind some sci-fi movies where you're replicating something out <laughs> of goo. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really looks like it. And then the thing that struck me about it is I was used to seeing the scaffolding kind of below a 3D print, like you were describing, you have to hold up the stuff. But when you 3D print in the goop, it hangs from it. So they have all these structures so that it's pulled out of the goop accurately and you don't leave something behind. Right. One of the neat things that a MakerBot printer can do is you can have a dual extrusion printer oh. and the you can be printing with the plastic but then having a soluble filament printing for all of your supports. Hmm. We've played with this a little bit. The downside is for large things you've got to have a very large vat of I think it's citric acid 
mm. uh, to uh, dissolve away those filaments. And while it smells nice, it's hard to get that amount of material. And it basically makes the supports into snot around your model. <laughs> yeah, so then you have to quickly wipe it all off. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that was the other thing with that stereolithography technique. Since it's coming out of goop, it's all covered in goop too. And I think it's it's not really the kind of resin that you want on your skin. So you have to wear gloves. And, and I think you even, they clean it with like acetone or something. They clean it with some kind of pretty strong solvent. I was surprised to get all that resin off of it. That's a whole other layer of intensity than just, you know, basically telling it to print and it's almost like an inkjet printer. Obviously the results aren't as consistent as a inkjet printer, but. <laughs> right. Is there anything else uh, interesting about the 3D printing that you've enjoyed doing or any other prints you liked? Well, I should mention that, as I said, on, uh, on some of the larger pieces, they don't always fit 100%. But I did discover that you can modify them slightly with a hairdryer. Hmm. So uh, one of the examples, uh, we did this uh, crocodilian with a long snap, and it tended to sort of flare out at the end. And to remedy that, uh, just hit the hairdryer on high for a few minutes, uh, gently, of course, and then you can just bend the thing ever so slightly and put it back into position. Or if you have something that has a slight twist to it, uh, you can straighten that up too. So, you know, just because these things come out of the printer uh, ready to go, so to speak, it doesn't mean that you don't have to tweak with them a little bit. Or, like I say, you can tweak with them if you want to. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of different techniques that we use here. I would say the finesse is Bob's special skill that he brings to it. If it was me doing it, it'd be a rock hammer trying to straighten those two pieces. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I would accidentally turn the whole thing into motion. I'd end up like squeezing a finestra closed or something. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but you can always open it back up. Two drills are four. I guess so. And then you'd have to restructure the thing with uh, epoxy back into shape. Uh, yeah, that's it's easy enough to do, honestly. Uh, Avis makes a very nice epoxy clay that uh, works quite well for building up things. So if you have parts that are missing and you want to fill something in, mix this stuff up, put it in there. And it has a very long work time, uh, a couple of hours, so you have time to put it in. It smooths out nicely. That's cool. So it's almost like you use the 3D print as like a, a pretty good model and then you go back and it has saved the time of most of the work but you can modify all the stuff that it doesn't know how to do or it screws up a little bit yeah, yeah that, that's probably accurate and i would also say that it depends on the quality of the original scan so mm. we have yeah. some that are really really nice and don't require much more than say uh, an exterior coat to uh, smooth them out and painting and there's others that yeah, you got to do a lot of filling, you got to do a lot of drilling, things like that. So, yeah, it, it can be a challenge at times. In particular, we tried to do two sloths, a two-toed sloth and a three-toed sloth skull. Yeah. And those two skulls, for whatever reason, just did not print out well. They were very mm. thin, um, had weird parts to interpret. I think one of the skulls had a fracture in its nose and its front teeth that really looked odd and was, for me as an invertebrate worker it was very hard to interpret 
what exactly had gone wrong with the skull. So those are some that turned out very poorly. The uh, models that we did of the diprotodon and the tylosaur and the smilosuchus all turned out very well. There's a tarbosaurus that we printed at half scale uh, that turned out very well. I think our human skulls or hominid mm -hmm. skulls have all turned out really well. Yeah. The small elephant that we did uh, turned out really well as, in addition. So those have all been ones that we've been really happy with. One of the nice things about the models is I've been able to turn around and use them in outreach. And the children who are doing, I'm doing outreach to are the general public still get to see this massive, awesome item from natural history. And they still get to get excited about it. And the more astute ones get to ask questions about the 3D printing and learn about that process in addition, instead of just, uh, you know, having the, the real object there, there's other pathways that we can discuss. So it's been a really nice thing to have for outreach, and we don't have the same risk of breaking the object and losing the singular, you know, skull or whatever it is, because we can print it again if we need to. Yeah, that's really cool. The ability to hand over these things to some kids to just play around with has to just be amazing for them to be able to get their hands on it when you're in a museum, you're you know, you're never allowed to touch anything exciting. You might be able to touch right. like, you know, a, a replica femur of some dinosaur or something, but you know, you want to get in there and grab the T Rex teeth and things. <laughs> right. And Kids can pose with these skulls plopped on top of their head, and that's fine. <laughs> and they get the excitement out of doing that, and they get a fun picture out of it and a nice memory. Yeah, yeah. I think that could really set a kid on a path towards science and mm -hmm. really cement some scientific interest. <laughs> that's great. We hope. Yes. Yeah. So when you guys are done with these CT scans, do you ever post them on like Thingiverse or one of the many sites like that? What I have done thus far is been using freely available ones. When I have access to them, when I have rights to them, uh, I've shared them with colleagues. But for many of them, it's more up to the colleagues who generated them to share them. Gotcha. Uh, and to be fair, the way that I access the scans that Digimorph has is a little bit of a digital hack. I've, I've talked to the people at Digimorph and they're fine with this. Uh, but they'd kind of like people to pursue individual, they, they would like people to pursue individual permission before working with their models. Hmm. So since this is other people's data, I don't put them out there. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. I know some of them are creative commons, but a lot of them aren't. <laughs> I think what Digimorph has realized in particular is that the technology that's out there to work with these scans has kind of surpassed what they designed their website for. They designed their website, I think, to be just a viewing platform. Mm. What people can actually do is, if with a little know-how, is download those movies and be able to do their own science with them. And that opens a can of worms up uh, for people who actually have the rights or own those scans. Yeah, I remember when 3D printing first started and there were all, all this talk of, you know, what does this do with patents? Somebody patents a certain shape and style of widget, and now all of a sudden you can just press print on a printer, and how are we going to handle that? I haven't really seen any big issues with it yet, but it does seem like eventually that's gonna, there's going to be some big court case, and we'll see how it gets interpreted. I noticed that after we purchased the uh, Mosasaur and Smilosuchus skulls that they disappeared online from the platform they were available for. Huh. I have a feeling, I suspect that it's precisely for that realization that somebody could use these 
not just for 3D modeling, but they could take that model and print it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was actually posted by a paleontological supply company. Interesting. Somebody worked for there. So I'm not surprised that it disappeared after somebody bought it. Yeah, that's interesting. So switching gears a, a little bit or a lot bit from 3D printing, I have to ask because we had an author on uh, probably a year or two ago now who has written some fiction about the Cretaceous period and it involved these giant ticks like the the insect that you know suck blood mm -hmm. and i asked him like how did you decide to do such a huge because i think he described them like the size of a dinner plate and i thought that was a little bit bigger than they would have gotten but <laughs> how big did arthropods get in the mesozoic were they a lot bigger than they are today during the mesozoic they seem to have been about the same size they are today there aren't really any extraordinarily sized arthropods, whether you're dealing with marine ones or you're dealing with freshwater ones or terrestrial ones. Now, with that said, within individual groups, there are groups that had much larger representatives then than they have now, or vice versa, things that are relatively small uh, that get to be quite large today. So the example that I think of immediately are the fleas. Hmm. Fleas were a lot larger, or the, the basal members of the flea lineage were a lot larger during the Mesozoic than they are today. That could be a preservational phenomenon as well, though, for a flea the size of fleas today stands basically no chance of making it into the fossil record just because it's so tiny. Mm -hmm. um, but larger members of the lineage have a much better shot at getting into the fossil record, and some of them have been proposed to be uh, kind of ectoparasites on dinosaurs or pterosaurs or something. They have weird kind of grasping claws to hold on to something. And hmm. that something is thought to be you know, a dinosaur or a pterosaur. But still, when I'm saying larger members of the lineage, it's something you could still kill with a fly swatter. It's not dinner plate size. Yeah, because I thought from you know, my childhood when there would be these alien movies and they would show up like giant crab people. I remember talking to my dad about it and he was like, you know, exoskeletons don't scale like that. When you, your oh. circulatory system is by diffusion and everything, you just can't get that big. Is that true regardless of, you know, being 10 degrees warmer and 5% more oxygen content kind of thing? That doesn't seem to be a threshold that causes significantly larger arthropods. We're, we have a nice pump system to get oxygen. Arthropods don't have that. They just rely on it coming in passively through their exoskeleton. So in order for them to get big, they've got to have some way to get more get the oxygen to the centers of their body. It's got to be able to diffuse there. Mm -hmm. And the only way to really do that that uh, they've been able to, to successfully use is not an evolutionary innovation, but rather an environmental change when there was much higher oxygen during the Carboniferous. Mm. So you got to go back a lot farther than the Mesozoic. <laughs> yes, that's when you get centipedes the size of skateboards, um, large spiders, cockroaches the size of your hand, eurypterids that you could probably hook a fan up to and make a pretty fair airboat out of. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of people's nightmares. <laughs> To some people, yes. Or maybe, you know, a fantasy land for, you know... For uh, others. Yeah. <laughs> a smaller group of us, perhaps. Yeah. Anybody we know. Perhaps. <laughs> oh, that's great. 
All right. Well, is there anything else you'd like to share or that you're working on? Well, for those who are interested, I've just published a paper on trilobite eggs, which is a bit far from the Mesozoic. I dabble in working on some arthropods in the Mesozoic as well. These are creatures called branchiopod crustaceans, which would have inhabited the freshwater habitats of the Mesozoic. And one thing that I think is really interesting about them is today their modern representatives are able to survive having their eggs pass through the digestive tract of another organ. So they are distributed by birds today. The birds will stop and eat the fairy shrimp or the tadpole shrimp or clam shrimp that are present in the freshwater ecosystem, migrate on, leaving their droppings somewhere, and out of those droppings will hatch the next generation. What I wonder is if that ability to withstand moving through the digestive system is something that actually evolved much deeper and may have been something that evolved not with modern bird lineage, but with their ancestors, with the dinosaurs, and happened during the Mesozoic. Hmm. So you have dinosaurs, for lack of a better phrasing, pooping out baby crustaceans. (laughs) That's cool. And Bob, do you have any art? I know that you're an artist. Do you have any place people can see some of your work? I've been working with Tom. I did some illustrations for some of his papers, so those should show up here soon, I would imagine. Uh, The sad end of things is that I was actually laid off. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, So I've technically taken my retirement while the state works out its uh, its own peculiarities. So who knows? I could be back, but uh, right now I'm just doing freelance work. Okay. I would like to point out something awesome that Bob has done uh, in the museum here is he sculpted a full-size replica of an ophthalmosaurus hanging from the ceiling of our geology museum. Awesome. He was also involved in sculpting wall panels. Uh, I think they were headed by students, but you were supervising of a Deinonychus skeleton laid out and then also of a Pteranodon skeleton laid out. That sounds really cool. I'll have to swing by. I don't think I've ever been to Western Illinois University. Where are you guys located? We're going to Illinois. Yep. So if you think of the shape of Illinois, I always tell people we're kind of in the nose of Illinois, conveniently located about three hours from any major airport. (laughs) We are the premier university in West Central Illinois. Well, for many years, we were the home of the MAPS Fossil Show as well. So Hmm. the Mid-American Paleontological uh, Society had their big fossils-only show, largest fossil-only show in North America, was held here in Macomb. It's now moved to Iowa City, but we have kind of felt the effects of that in our collections here with lots of donations from MAPS members and from vendors at the MAPS show. Oh, cool. Well, Well, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for joining. It was a great discussion. No problem. Anytime. Thanks again to Tom and Bob for the awesome interview. I really want to get a 3D printer now and start printing some stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I just set up an aquarium and I keep fantasizing about 3D printing like different dinosaurs and putting them in there somehow. I haven't figured out what exactly I need to do. I also need to make sure that the plastic isn't going to kill the fish, but we'll see. Yeah, there's a lot of awesome things you can print. Yeah, there's so many. It doesn't have to be plastic. Well, with any kind of 3D printer I can afford. Oh, true, true. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Lorenhanosaurus, which was a request by a Portuguese eagle via YouTube. So thanks. The name means Lorenha lizard, 
but referencing the formation. And it was a theropod that lived in the Jurassic in what is now Portugal. It was discovered in 1982 near Lorenha, Portugal, and described in 1998 by Octavio Mateus. The type species is Lorenahanosaurus antunesi, and the species name is in honor of Miguel Teles Antunes, a Portuguese paleontologist. The holotype is a partial skeleton with vertebrae from the ribs, the right tibia and fibula, metatarsus, and 32 associated gastroliths, and the holotype was a subadult. It was about 15 feet or 4.5 meters long and weighed about 350 pounds or 160 kilograms, and it was estimated that it would take 10 years to reach adult size, and adult would be maybe 26 feet or 8 meters long. There's no real agreement on where Lauren Hanasaurus belongs. At first it was thought to be part of Allosauroidea, but now some scientists think it was part of Megalosauroidea. And in 2010, Benson said that it was part of Synraptoridae, and then in 2012, Carano said it was a Salurosaur. So, lots of debate. But if Lauren Hanasaurus is a Synraptorid, it would be the first one found outside of China. In 1993, about 100 eggs, some with embryonic bones, were found at a nearby beach, Pamogo. And in 2001, they were assigned to Lorenohanosaurus. And the eggs that were found were about 5 inches or 13 centimeters long and thought to be Lorenohanosaurus because they were found near the type specimen. It was carnivorous and the first known theropod to have gastroliths. And scientists determined that they weren't swallowed accidentally when maybe eating a herbivorous <laughs> dinosaur. I never thought about that before. That's funny. Yeah. So the gastroliths may have helped tenderize the meat. Carnivorous dinosaurs are not great at chewing. Or maybe Lorenohanosaurus had eaten shellfish and crustaceans and then the gastroliths helped crack the shells. But it's unclear if that's what happened since no skull has been found. Europe in the Jurassic had many islands, so animals may have adapted to different kinds of foods. It's also possible that Lorenohanosaurus changed what it ate as it grew older, like how tyrannosaurs are faster and more agile when they're juveniles and they chase smaller ornithopods, that when they get bigger and older, they go for larger dinosaurs. As a juvenile, it's possible Lorenohanosaurus went to beaches to eat smaller dinosaurs or eat fish and crustaceans from tidal pools and then swallow gastrolis to help digest them. And then maybe as an adult, it may have started hunting larger dinosaurs for food. So hard to say at this point, but it's interesting to think about and the gastroliths are, yeah, an interesting piece of the puzzle. <laughs> if you'd like, you can see Lorenohanosaurus and the eggs at the Museo de Lorenha. And our fun fact of the day comes from the Dinosaur Ecosystems class by the University of Hong Kong that I just finished, and is super awesome. I think this series just ended, but hopefully they'll post it and open it back up again sometime soon. They answered a question from one of the students about how we can determine the age of dinosaurs by counting the lines of arrested growth, also known as lags in bones. And as a reminder, we've talked about this before, you can count these lines in dinosaur bones and it works pretty similar to counting rings in a tree. But the question is, how do we know that those lines only happen once a year? So what scientists have done is they've compared dinosaur fossil bones to modern animals that are related to them, like crocodiles, and they find that lags consistently happen just once a year. So that's how we make the assumption that these dinosaur bone lags are happening once a year. You add up the number of lines and you get the number of years old it is. Although it can get complicated because dinosaur bones are sometimes hollow, so you have to kind of estimate how many lags would have been in that hollow space, but 
If you find a couple juveniles, it makes it a lot easier to estimate their growth rate and you can figure it out a little better. Cool. <laughs> Sounds like a good course. Yeah. Maybe I'll really take good. it the next round. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And again, if you want to join our Stegosaurus group or see what's happening behind the scenes or get us closer to sending out stickers to everyone, then check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at iknowdino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at iknowdino.